Good evening. I'm John Higgins. You must know everybody here. And uh, from Acorn Farm Vets, I'm a farm animal practitioner uh, just down the road in Bellmead area, but have worked in this area for a long time. And uh, happy for everybody that came here tonight. Really appreciate it. And it's a timely time of year. We're going to be talking tonight about, um, got a few more people coming, but um, no, 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 that's good, Mark. Um, but first of all, I want to thank um, Charity and Mark Rinker, uh, who handle the Grange Affairs, and uh, I noticed this place, I mean, I've gone by it a million times, but when we had the Holstein meeting across the street in January, I saw it, and I thought that'd be a good place for a producer meeting. And uh, very happy it came together here on this nice night. And um, in talking about parasites tonight, it is kind of a timely topic, particularly for the sheep and goat people, everybody that's here tonight. Um, and so we'll talk about that, and then I'm uh, gonna talk a little about the upcoming changes and uh, in the, the FDA, uh, medicine laws that are going to be changing over-the-counter antibiotics, not anything else, to prescription status, which for everyone that's using a veterinarian currently, it shouldn't be too much of a hurdle at all. But throughout the whole talk, um, at any time, stick your hand up because I would love to have a bit more of a back and forth. I was talking with one of my uh, colleagues uh, the other day about uh, changes down at Penn Vet and um, how they're going from what they called when we were there a uh, learning a very detailed living in didactic silos and just learning one thing to a more of a back and forth dynamic process and so we'd like to have a little bit of that uh, tonight too so stick your hand up uh, anything I, I talk about I'm going to be going through basically this does everybody have uh, brochures which is just kind of be the, the, the follow along on this and I'll have another one to pass out when we get to it um, so I think we'll start uh, by talking a little bit about um, parasites in sheep and goats and really tonight's focus is going to be on one in particular which is the barber pole worm and barber barber's pole worm and homunculus contortus properly and it's the one that really makes the biggest impact and I was at a talk at uh, AASRP the small room of practitioners Association probably eight or nine years ago, and Dr. Lisa Williamson, who's at the uh, Wormex, the Southeast Consortium for Parasite Control, look it up if you need any proper. There's so much information online about parasites, but Wormex.info is the one to go to, and I'll post this uh, information online so the links are available. I think uh, on the back page there are some links about the FDA, and I'll post them so you don't have to copy copy them you can just click on them but what she she talked about the NCIS nematode crime investigative service and it's because of when you think of the, the type of parasites that usually affect sheep and goats but also cattle pigs and other animals they usually are performance they're, they're thieves they rob performance they rob gain they take nutrients away from them but homunculus contortus the barber pole worm it's a killer and I'm sure a lot of you have experienced it. It takes blood from the animals and it lives in the, um, in the abomasum in their fourth stomach. And it has that distinction of when you have animals with anemia and weight loss and, uh, and death, really. It can, be, it can be very sudden. And we, we live in an area here where we're prone to it. We're not out in deserts in Eastern Oregon or, or drier areas. We have a wet climate and we have a warm climate and those are the things that really uh, that worm prefers and so it's really important to work as a team on farms uh, to find out what exactly is causing a problem 
and identifying it. And one of the ways that we used to treat, and I'll, I'll go back because I was taught some time ago about how to deworm back when I was in school, and basically everything we learned in school then is wrong. And so it's relearning that and realizing that treating them isn't just like what you're doing now is a parasite control program, not a deworming program because we're learning that these dewormers are really finite resources. They, they don't work forever. And so we're learning to be in a world where it's just to that. And that's really happened over the last 10 years or so. And it's because of multi-drug resistance to these parasites, particularly Homunculus contortus. And so try to figure out a plan to not just treat your way out of it. So that's what a lot of the talk would be about. So the first thing is the profile, keeping with the crime theme, because they are, and usually this is the time of year when I'm really starting to see some problems with it. And we've had some sheep at home with some of the problems that have overwintered with it. But if you look at this picture in your brochure here, the homunculus contortus, the barber pole, it's, it's about an inch long and it's striped. You know, maybe a lot of people don't see a barber's pole too often right now. But the, the anatomy of the worm is you have the di digestive tract that's filled with blood because that's what they take and it coils around the worm. And you also have the uterus with eggs in it that coils around and it has that coiled around appearance striped like a barber's pole. And what they do is they pierce into the abomasum and they take blood. And the other thing that makes them really difficult to deal with is they make so many eggs. Uh, an adult female can make five to 10,000 eggs per day, and it can really contaminate an environment. And the other thing with the amount of blood they take is an animal that's really fully infected with barber pole can lose 3% of their blood volume per day, and that's huge. You know, it doesn't seem like 3% doesn't seem like a lot, but put 10 days on that, and they're down 30%. And we'll talk about that a little bit later using the FAMACHA card to identify um, what's going on with them uh, by, the, by the relative anemia. But they have a, a really quick life cycle too, which is another pathogenic factor that makes it. It's not like they take six months to make all these eggs. Within three weeks, they can go from being an egg on the pasture to being an egg layer in the abomasum. And it's a quick turnaround. And so that's why some of the principles of not just deworming, but what's called integrated pasture management. It's sort of a, a borrowed term from uh, integrated pest management that you see in, in, in crops and, and vegetables and, and grain crops. But we want to kind of manage things so that we're not having just to rely on deworming because that goes away as uh, resistance builds up. So they can decimate a herd pretty quickly because of that quick turnover, lots of eggs, and reinfection and resistance to the dewormers. So who are the victims? Well, you see those two there, sheep and goats, and also two, we're not, we don't, I don't think we have, we have anybody here with alpacas? Yes, yep, yep. So they, can, they, are, they are also ones that can be affected by barber pole. And the pr same principles apply. So who is affected uh, more frequently? Youngsters in their first grazing season, that's why people that have sheep with lambs or kids following the mothers on pasture, those mothers have a little bit of immune um, built up, immunity built up, excuse me, so that they can resist what's going on. But they're laying the eggs still, 
and the youngsters are picking it up. And they have, they don't have a, their immune system works, but it's new. It's think about an older animal, whether it's a cow or a sheep. They've seen more disease in their life and their immune system is built up and it resists them. Youngsters don't do that and that's why they also have a smaller blood volume so they can really be quickly overwhelmed with it. So that's why checking for them in the, uh, throughout the grazing season is important to see if your animals are reinfected because they can turn very quickly. <clears throat> Pregnant or lactating females and as sheep get near lambing time and a lot of times it's back in March a little bit earlier and, and going on still a bit. Some people are still kidding out animals. And so um, what they have then is called the peripartuant rise, just peri around the time of parturition when they're delivering. And at that time, their body undergoes some changes where their immune system wanes a little bit and they're using more protein. They have a dip in the amount of globulin in their blood and it almost gives the worms an opportunity to get in. Uh, one of the ways we used to treat them was we used to deworm use at lambing time. Uh, that's not, and deworm everybody. And again, that's not something we want to talk about how we used to do it and how you should do it now. Um, but that was one of the ways to take advantage of or kind of deal with the periparchment rise. And if you see that, those are the females. That's why if you have a, a ewe or a doe around the time of lambing, they can be a little bit more susceptible. You see them becoming a little bit more anemic. And animals getting suboptimal nutrition. Going to be talking about nutrition a little bit afterwards. But um, nutrition, if they don't have the highly metabolizable protein being fed to them, that's when they can kind of dip a little bit. And that's why a lot of times ewes and does as they get close to lambing or kidding, we'll give them a little, maybe a little more alfalfa, maybe some soybean meal, something to give them some easily accessible protein to make up for that dip in, the, in, their, in their blood protein that they have. And animals that are debilitated, older animals, sick animals, they've got another process going on. Um, if they're stressed, they're not able to fight disease properly. And so those are the ones that can be affected by um, Barberpole humongous. And it's also, you'll hear it called uh, hemoncosis as a disease. And the typical crime scene in the area where you have a high likelihood of things like that is gonna be, for example, really high stocking rates. You know, someone has 50, sheep on like three acres. Um, it, this, the old expression, the solution to pollution is dilution, that makes sense. But when you have that, you can have some really high areas of contamination. And pasture management makes a big difference with that. Not only just rotation, but also the height at which they uh, have uh, problems. So, and one of the things with sheep and goats and we, when we talk about dewormers, and we'll talk about the three different classes that we have here in this country that we use. Goats have a little, of all of them, goats have more uh, parasites that have resistance to the dewormers, and it's because of how they've evolved. Sheep are born grazers, so they're used to it. So they've kind of evolved a little bit to have a little bit more resistance. We've made goats. You think about, look at a picture of goats up in a tree grazing. Not many worms up there. And, um, so they have gone from where they are up in there on those bushes eating some wild rose to grazing down there close like a horse, particularly if there's high stocking rates. And those high stocking rates are what can really give you problems with that. So you want to dilute it out a little bit. It's true also, we see that in the cattle world, uh, like with calving, the Sand Hills Calving Program, where we're doing the same thing. We're moving them to new areas, keeping things clean. And it's true whether it's parasites or whether it's scours pathogens. Having a clean area for them is really important. So 
So that rise in late pregnancy and early lactation is important to know too. And, and they can, you can, I had some animals that have had 30,000 eggs per gram in the manure sample. It's really high. Um, and think about how, when I say about how quickly they turn around, three weeks. So what happens, let me just back up a little bit. What happens is the egg comes out in manure. It goes down on the grass. It takes advantage of wet dew in the area or rain. And you have this L3 that is out there and it's got kind of, the egg's kind of got a space suit on it. And it gets there and it can hatch out and it can kind of crawl up a grass blade. And just like in this picture here, it crawls up to the, to the grass blade waiting for a host to eat it, swallow it and start the cycle all over again. Um, the thing about having that spacesuit on, they can't eat during that. So they have to wait and they don't have any more nutrition coming in. And so that's how when we're planning some of the pasture rotations and strategies to control, you can take advantage of that. The expression that's over, over here is uh, what Dr. Williamson said, there's only so many wiggles per worm. My wife Tracy asked, what does that mean? And um, what it means is, is that you have an egg, a larva on the grass blade that has only so much time until it has to be eaten. Things can affect it. If it stays kind of warm and wet, it can go longer. It might be a month or more. And that's where the principles of pasture rotation come into play. And a lot of times you'll see, and there's a lot of different ways it can be done. You wanna get some sort of rest. And I know here in our area, we're, it's not like you're out west where you can have, okay, we've got all these pastures, we can, do, we can make 12 pastures and rotate them every so often. The, if you can do any sort of rotation at all, it's really helpful because it breaks a cycle and then that larva is sitting there and no one's eating it and then it dies. Last summer, we had that drought, which was no fun. But the one thing I thought about, I thought, well, gee, at least these worms are dying out here. They're not gonna, gonna live on. And that helped out a lot. Same thing in the wintertime. Cold will, the cold will really affect them. As they're sitting out there on pasture, they can live for a certain amount of time. Cold will kill them off. Desiccation, ultraviolet light. That's why we recommend to people that they drag their pastures. It's not as big a deal as it is with cattle, but still spreading that manure out, exposing those larvae to ultraviolet light helps a lot. And so there's a lot of things in terms of parasite control that go beyond the, the drenches that you give. And so let's talk a little bit about the um, dewormers that we use. Um, there's three basic ones that we have. A lot of people, are, everybody's familiar with Safeguard and Ivamac and also Prohibit. And then there's ones off of that. Uh, Cydectin, that's a, brand, that's a type that's close in class to Ivermec. Uh, it's an Avermectin. The white dewormers, as they're called, Safeguard. There's also people have used Valbazin probably on sheep uh, or goats. Um, that one's really good too. It can control, can regard it as a little bit stronger. It probably is, um, but don't use it in the first trimester of, of pregnancy. Um, there's another one, Synanthic, but the white dewormers, they're good, but you have to consider how to use them because there's so much resistance to them. When they have um, looked at resistance in the Southeast, there is nearly 95 to 100% resistance on sampled farms. And I mean, not just like one farm, but a lot of farms to the white dewormers. How you can get around that a little bit is that you can double the amount. I know a lot of times I've been on farms and I'll ask, did you give it a label? Like, no, double the amount of it. And Safeguard literally is quite safe. Um, double the amount, but also extend the exposure to it. One of the strategies that you can use and is recommended to do is hold them off feed for a little bit before you deworm them. 
and that slows the flow of ingesta down. If you're slowing the flow of ingesta, you're also going to slow the amount of the, you're going to prolong the time that the worm is exposed to that dewormer. And that's also true with Ivamec. You want to give them probably 150% of what the label says. Yes, Monica. Sorry, when you said to hold them off deep for a little bit, how long are we saying like the day before or we say the feed before? I, ideally, if you can get at least 12 to 18 hours off feed, that would be good. That would be good. I know it might get kind of loud out in the barn, but um, it, is, it is helpful for that. And even other people will just, for example, with the white dewormers like Safeguard, they'll give them three days in a row. And I know, you know, if you've got a lot of animals, it's extra work. I know the, the recommendations I make, I know they may be good, and they probably they are, but people have to do them. And I know people having to run cattle back through a chute or sheep around, it, it, it's a lot of work. But it, it, it can make the difference in efficacy of treatment. And that's really what we're doing with these dewormers is, or, or these parasite control is, yeah, yes, yeah. All right, so say you're doing it three days in a row. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. That's a good question. Just, in this, just you can probably get away with keeping them. Not, you will be okay getting them a feed. What you're trying to do is prolong a period by giving it three days in a row. And the benzamidazole class, the white dewormers, they benefit from that cumulative exposure. The avermectins like Ivamec or Dectomax or Cydectin are okay with just the treatment. Yes, Shannon. So the Cydectin is okay to use on the Yes, it is. But here's, here's one quick little thing about that. Some people will start with Cydectin. Don't do that. If you haven't used, hi Mary Beth. It's one of my colleagues, Dr. Mary Beth Hormeski, also a farm veterinarian. Um, and what they will do is they will um, start with Cydectin. Don't do that. Use Ivamec. And we're going to talk about doing FECs, fecal egg counts, to assess the, the um, efficacy of your deworming treatment. Um, because Cydectin will control a little bit more than Ivamec, start with Ivamec first. Use it at the 150% dose level. Make sure you know the weights of your animals. I've run into problems on some farms where they were treating 60-pound lambs as 40-pounders, and they were underdosing them. And that does two things. One, it doesn't work. Uh, you have sub-therapeutic sub levels. Um, two, the, you're exposing the worms to that level. And so they're getting greater selection pressure to develop resistance. So it's best to kill them right away with the proper dose at the recommended way. And it all depends on the class and of dewormer, I mean. And so use Ivamec until it stops working. How do you know if it stops working with any of them? You look at the fecal egg counts. And also a little bit with the fomicha, the looking at the eyes. But looking at your fecal egg counts, and we'll talk about that for a minute now. Um, when you assess the efficacy of the deworming treatment, if you have an animal and you say, well, how's she doing? Um, we look at the egg counts and say they're running 1,000, just as a round number on that. If you deworm, that should be, it should be dropped by 90 to 95%. If it doesn't, it's not working properly. There's an aspect of resistance. And so that's when you think, maybe this isn't working. If you're deworming with Ivamec and you're at 1,000 and it drops it to 400, you have to change some things. And that's when you can go to another class, whether it's, um, you probably wouldn't go back to the white dewormers, you may go to prohibit, or you might go to Cydectin. So back to that point about Cydectin, is that use the Ivermectin until it stops working, go to the Cydectin then, you'll get a greater 
range of control from that same class, avermectin class drug. Uh, if you start with cydectin, you can't go back to Ivermec because it, it doesn't work that way. And so, well, Mary Beth, you probably remember when we were in school, they would say use class one in April and then one, a different one in July and a different one in April. All that does is show the worms different types of dewormers by themselves and allow selection pressure to develop. What has been found and is recommended to do is to use combinations. And that would be using, okay, we're gonna use Ivamec and Safeguard or Valbazin as an example. And if each of them kills 90% of the parasites that are there, together they're gonna to kill 99%. And you're gonna have less resistant parasites going out the back end of the animal. And you're also gonna get more of what's on pasture too, because you have a balance of parasites in your farm. About 10% of them are in the animal about 90% of them are on the pasture. And so when we're treating, we're not just treating this animal to kill worms. I tell people that, or I discuss with farmers that we're trying to do three things. We're trying to kill the parasites, you know, alleviate that animal's parasite burden. Um, but we're also trying to help the herd out and keep them safe too. Because if you have an individual on a farm that's shedding a lot of parasites, it's making it worse for the lambs out there, the debilitated ones, the ewes or does that may be close to, to uh, delivery and having that periparchment rise. And keeping that pasture safe is the second part of it. The third part of it is using these in a manner that's gonna maintain their efficacy. Because everything we do to push and select for resistant parasites is gonna mean we're gonna have less to work with. We've got three classes of deworming drugs in this country. Now, Australia uh, and other Commonwealth countries and other places in the world have Monopatel, and there's another one out there now that's there, but they're already seeing some resistance there to them. So, and they do sell over in New Zealand, I know, in Australia, combinations that come in a, in a drenched jug. So they know the value of it. And a lot of times people's first impression is like, boy, putting all three together, it's gonna be, it, it works. And it's something you consider. And one place to consider the use of a combination, or not, you should do it, is when you have new animals. There's two places that resistant parasites come from. They're either homegrown or you buy them. So when you buy a new animal, you may be getting some free resistant parasites. They come with them. And a lot of times when I'm talking uh, to vet students or animal science classes, I'll say a lot of disease comes in on a trailer in the driveway. And so you wanna be, a lot of farms, not all, are a little bit casual about biosecurity with their animals. And you have a new animal come in, what really should happen? They should be going on a dry lot. They shouldn't be near any grass. They should be quarantined for at least 10 to 14 days. When they first get there, you get a fecal sample from them so you can measure what's going on. And getting the fecal sample, um, try to get eight or 10 pellets from the sheep. Uh, approximately, you probably get by with less than that, uh, but clean, try to, you know, don't go out in pasture and look for one, oh, that looks good. Um, it might be a little bit old and the larvae are already hatching out. So a clean sample, get it in a Ziploc and some people, that will maintain its, efficacy, its viability as a, a, a sample for a couple days. I have people that mail them to me. Some people vacuum seal them. They can be good for up to three weeks vacuum sealed because you're taking the oxygen from them. So, but what I don't like to get is a sample that's got larvae coming out of it already. So the, um, using the metric of the percent that you kill is very important and that's where the use of combinations come in. So these quarantine animals, three classes, use the prohibit, 
use the uh, avermectin, whether it's cydectin or ivermec, and use the safeguard or, or a, a white drench, I should say, a double, double the weight dosage. Now, prohibit is one where you want to be right on the money with it. You want to know the weight of the animals and you want to give them the label dose. And I know the label on prohibit, like Corid, is a tough one to figure out. It isn't really like this is what you do. You've got to figure it, you know, think about it a lot. But use it properly, mix it up, have your drench ready for that. But then 10 days later, when you take that sample, look for that 95%, 90 to 95% kill on them. And then you're like, okay, I can put these animals out there. If they still, if they're maybe a 40 or 50% kill, all you're doing is introducing resistant parasites to your farm. And once a farm gets resistant parasites on it, you can kind of consider it's permanent. They're not going away. And so that's why using some care with that. Maybe a really great ram or a really nice doe, but you don't want to bring in troubles like that. So doing these things, and I know it takes extra work, it's really helpful to do and really for the viability of your farm um, because um, as we're going down this road of multi-drug resistance on these, there are some farms I work with that have to dry lot their animals. And that's no fun. I mean, they're grazers. And, but the alternative of getting infected or continuing infection is one. So working with, um, and it's a team approach. Um, we've talked about that on calls, Rachel. Um, on dairy farms, it's the hoof trimmer, the nutritionist, the veterinarian, the farm, and working together for the health of the animals. And so that's why a veterinarian that's familiar with small ruminants um, it can be your animal advisor to help you through that. And that's what we like to do. Um, so. If that animal doesn't respond to that, well, what do you do? Now, some people will use, uh, you could treat them then with some, everybody familiar with copper uh, wire particles, COWPs, uh, copper oxide. And so that's copper. Copper is a very effective dewormer. We'll just talk about that for a minute. But it has, you have to be very careful giving it. Goats have a little bit less of a problem with it. It can be toxic. Anyone that has British breed sheep, you have to be real careful about it. It can be used. Um, you can use it. What, what copper does, I'll just back up a little bit. Copper is usually not an acute problem, but copper toxicity is usually a chronic problem where they build up over time. And all of a sudden you see this kind of sick you and she's got orange eyes and it's probably built up over a period of time. And so that's why when you have sheep, you don't feed goat or cattle mineral because of the copper in it. And I get about a case a year like that. Using the, you can use the particles usually in a market lamb because one, one dose of them isn't gonna hurt them. Because where are they going? They're going to market. You know, they're not gonna be around that long. But if you give that to lambs that are stay around going into the breeding herd, or you give it to ewes or does, and you keep giving it, and some people kind of substitute COWPs for dewormer on a one-to-one -one basis, and they get too much. And what I say about that is that old line from a Clint Eastwood movie, do you feel lucky? And be careful with it. it. It can be a way around it. And when you have complete resistance, yes, Rachel? Is that in the form of a bolus? Yeah, okay. copasure. Okay. Yep, and you get one or two gram or half gram sizes, and you dose them according to weight. So, you know, if you have some lambs, a market lamb, one dose is probably fine. I have a couple questions. Sure. Um, well, most of the time, by the time, I mean, I can be checking for matcha. Mm -hmm. And they're not, maybe not real dark peaks, but maybe somewhere in between. And then next day, I can come out and find a lamb that's lethargic. Yeah. So at that point, 
giving ivermectin isn't really a good option, right? Because if, normal, I've had to take them in at that point to get blood transfusions. Yeah. If they're that bad, yes, you're going to kill the parasites off. You're going to stop what the draining of blood that's going on, so to speak. Um, so yes, you can do that, but you still have that really sick anemic animal to deal with, and that's a whole other situation because not. I mean, the worms don't just sit there and take out red blood cells. They take serum and protein, and that's why if you've heard the term and seen what's called bottle jaw in animals. And whether any animal that's hypoproteinemic, low protein in the blood, blood vessels get kind of leaky. It leaks out a little bit and with a dependent place under the jaw and you'll see a, you coming in. And the other thing you watch for, people know what their sheep do or their goats. They come in at the certain ones. Certain ones, so one comes in first, another comes in last. All of a sudden you see a ewe that's usually like third. She's coming in last, walking slow. Check her, I bet she's got white eyes. And so that's, we'll, we'll talk about the Fomacha test a little bit. Uh, when I was on an externship in North Carolina, that's where I first heard the expression, something is as white as a wormy sheep's eyeball. And it is, um, and they can look less like that refrigerator over there. So the Fomacha card, um, is everyone familiar with that? Is everyone, yep, so that was developed in South Africa. Uh, Francis, Francois uh, Malin. Uh, Fafa was his nickname, so they have the Fa and then the Malin and then CHA for chart. And they validated first there on sheep and then goats. So it's just in your brochure on the right side. And you have um, different colors. Uh, one is bright red like a barn, and five is white like a sheet of paper. And in between, and you make, you're making decisions on deworming with that so that you can do selective deworming. So you're not doing everybody all at once. And that selective deworming is what preserves the efficacy of the drug because the worst thing you can do is deworm everybody and put them out on a clean pasture that hasn't been used for a while. Because then all you populate that pasture with is resistant parasites. And so the expression I think I have here, um, treat the, Leave the best and treat the rest and look before you treat. Look at the eyes. If you have, you know, I'm going to hand some of these around this five-point check. I don't know if I have quite enough for everybody. But actually, just kind of pass these around. Down. I'll take some of those. I'll pass the other side of the room. I guess I got my notes in there, too. <laughs> Sorry, Lauren. So um, how do you decide how to treat? Here's some here to split up. Well, you look at your Fomacha card, and if you've got a U with, um, let me pass some over there. Just for me. Thanks. As long as everybody can kind of look over and see uh, what's, what's there. If you've got a U that has a really good red eyes, she's in good body condition, she doesn't have any dags. What I mean by dags is manure on the, around the back end. So her manure isn't wet. And there are, you can go look at what dag scores and see what they are. Um, so if her manure is in good shape, she's got good body condition, good color eyes, skip her. Don't deworm her. It's saving your dewormer. Yes, it's more, a little bit more work than doing that, but when she goes out, her worms are susceptible to parasite most likely, and they're going to populate the pasture with susceptible parasites. You want that balance. It's called refugia. You'll see that term in some of the articles on parasites. And refugia is where you're having a balance of that. And as long as you have the balance on there, you're going to be able to continue to treat successfully. If you really put selection pressure on these worms by treating everybody willy-nilly, then you're going to end up with the bulk of your paras uh, parasites on pasture um, being um, resistant, and that's no good. And th the one thing you want to be a little bit careful about is the, um, 
there's two things. Um, it's the old 80-20 rule. 20% of your animals in your flock are probably going to have 80% of the parasite problems. And it's also a little bit true on the areas of pasture that you have on a farm. Um, you can have some what are called hypertransmission or hot spots. That's a little bit more true with sheep or goat dairies where they come in twice a day and they stand. And, or if you have an area where they do congregate a lot, maybe consider either mowing it down or having them maybe a little gravel if it's an area where they're coming in to eat and they're waiting to come back into the lot to get some grain or whatever they get. Because those areas, they can really pick up some parasites really quickly. I've had sheep that have picked up parasites in March because they were still on dry lot, but they're reaching through and eating the grass. And the, there was some manure near the edge. They've got all day. They'll do it. And they eat up and they pick it there. So looking at your transmission, looking at how they can transmit, how you can keep some areas clean is really important. Um, now, a little bit on pasture management. Sheep and goats and horses are really close grazers. And so that can be an area where they can really get more in because they go down so close. If you can rotate them off and going to the topic of pasture rotation, by moving them, if you can have a setup where you can move them every, ideally every seven days, maybe in the summer six days, they're in that paddock, they leave before after they leave, that's when those L3s that came out in the manure when they're in that paddock become infective. So they've left, and that worm's got, that egg's got, to, that larva's got to wait to be eaten. And if it waits long enough, it's not going to be causing infection. I know everybody can't divvy it up into the ideal proper one. An ideal rest for a paddock is about 30 days, 30 to 42 days. So that can be hard, but even if you can do a portion of that, you're going to help break the cycle a little bit and reduce the infection rate. And if we have a, a summer, like not last summer, we had a lot, you probably saw a lot in June because it was still wet out and I saw a bunch, <coughs> bunch of them. And you can get a lot of times reinfected so quickly that you can't keep up with it. When it dried off in July and August, it was a little bit better. But if we have a long wet summer, we're going to have a lot of parasite problems. So doing these things beforehand really helps out. So how do you decide? You look at the eyes uh, on that one uh, chart there. Look at their body condition. Um, feel through the wool. Most people are sheared by now, but a lot of times wool can hide a lot of things. And you can have a sheep that looks really nice and big and round. You put it on, she's got a old razor back for her spine, so she's lost some weight. So just feel your animals, and you know what's going on besides looking at the eyes. Now the Famacha test, Really, you want to do it in a certain way. Have one of the cards. And we're having a certification for Famacha at the Sheep Festival in about four months. Yep. Um, where we're going to be, I'm going to be doing a, a, a class on that. And people will be certified. They'll get their Famacha cards. You want to have the card, ideally, hold it up under the eye. And don't just, you know, go like this. You know, pull down. You can't, it doesn't really show much. It's like push, pop, and look. And so they'll push, you push down, and people, as I say, push on the eyeball. And people are like, no, don't do that. <laughs> it doesn't. You do it to yourself. You don't feel it. But what it does is it averts the conjunctival bed so you can get an accurate look at it, and you can give it a number. In the, in the real wet, warm weather, think about doing that maybe once a week on some animals. Check your animals, particularly your young, young animals, your lambs. Um, they can be affected by that. But do that routinely, and that will save you treatment. It will make sure the treatments that you do do are more effective. And um, it's, it's a good routine, and it really correlates with infection levels. Now, it doesn't correlate with other parasites. 
Cheap, they don't get just barber pole. It's the majority of the problem. There's trichostrongyls, there's uh, nematodirus, cuperia, and other ones that really like a little cooler weather and they cause a lot of diarrhea, kind of typical parasite loss. They aren't affected by the copper oxide wire particles so much. So you'll see them on, they'll come up on account. And they're, the one nematodirus, if you find one, one egg of that, it's considered pathogenic and they can cause some weight loss. But again, that's usually like an April, May thing with lambs or kids that are out on pasture and they get diarrhea and weight loss. They're, fortunately, they're a little bit more susceptible some, to some of the dewormers. And so be aware that they are out there also. So that's why you're looking at the back end of the animal, that chart that I passed around. It's not just the, um, the FOMICA score, it's, which is very important. And if you note a difference and you look at the chart, there's five things there. Which ones do you treat? And the chart has on it, I think, uh, check marks, they're okay. And then who do you deworm? This is upside down. Question mark on number three. I really like to treat number threes. I would rather treat a few more and make sure that I don't leave an anemic animal that needs treatment. So I treat the threes, fours, and fives. You're still going to leave a, a good proportion of animals that are going to be fine and putting out uh, susceptible eggs on pasture, maintaining refugia, but you're going to treat the ones that need it. And then how do you decide when to retreat? Um, if you're doing the fecal egg counts, assessing what's going on, that can be very helpful. Um, there is something, and I'll put that on the post, a link to it for the, I think the National Sheep Improvement Program has it, and they have some subsidized uh, fecal egg testing that can be done. Um, there is a lab out there, Mid-America, I think. Um, don't write it down because I don't like it. Um, it's, it's okay, but you really don't get the type of report that you want on the eggs. So um, if you have, if someone's going to be testing fecal samples for you, ask what they look for or how they look. What's, what's typically done and what is the best way to quantify what's going on, because you are, you're not just looking at a float saying, well, there's some worm eggs in there. You want someone that's doing a McMaster float. And McMaster is a way of taking X amount grams of manure, mixing it with so many milliliters of a floating a solution, a salt solution, and taking that and putting it in a chamber that's gridded. And you count how many are in there, multiply by 60 or 30, depending on your dilution, and you come up with an eggs per gram. Because if you can't manage, measure it, you can't manage it. And so by doing that, you get an accurate count. And if someone is looking at strongyle eggs, and most of the ones because of how they lay eggs and the predominance, they usually are homunculus, contortus, or barber pole. But if they tell you they can speciate by looking at that, they don't. You can't tell. It's a, it's a strongyle, and you can tell that. You can also, the nematodirus is a big egg. You can see that. And if and sheep or, or goats have, or other species have coccidia, you'll see them, the little tiny little oocysts. So, but for the most part, because of how they are and how they lay eggs, the um, homunculus is going to be what you see, and you're going to look for that drop in the egg count uh, when you test them. When do you test them? After the first one, after the deworming. Ideally, about 10 to 12 days. The reason for that is sometimes the dewormers will just kind of shock the worms a little bit, uh, and they'll stop laying eggs for a little bit. Um, and if you looked at them like three or four days afterwards, there's no eggs left. Well, good, they're good. But then they start laying again. And then if, but if you, what if you waited three weeks to do it? By then they probably have picked up from grazing again and they've reinfected themselves. And I see a lot of that in the summertime, early summertime. You get animals, you treat them, and then they, they kind of go downhill again. They've reinfected themselves just going on eating. That's why you want to move them to a pasture. Uh, 
ideally treat them, kind of keep them where they are for a few days, keep them with some other animals that have been treated, haven't been treated, excuse me, and then move them to a new pasture. Um, and again, I think the one thing here, um, the, people say, boy, this is complicated. We're doing a lot of new things here. And basically, we're doing different from what vets and county agents told people for decades. And it's the evolution since about 2000 of the resistance in first Ivamec and then the white dewormers. So, um, what time are we at, honey? 7.19. Okay. So, <clears throat> looking at... Just one thing. Yeah, sure. I know, I know. So what do we do now? I would be, <coughs> if it's at all possible to keep the lambs, if, are they weaned? They, oh yeah. Okay, try to keep them separate <coughs> from the adults. They're gonna have a little bit less contamination that way. Okay. You don't have any horses, do you? Horses? Yeah. Not that's, a donkey. A donkeys. Well see, that helps. And that's, that's another means. There's different alternative means of, of, of treating and, and they are considered part of that integrative pasture management. I had a fellow, yes, he had St. Croix sheep, but he's got a couple of horses and donkey out with that. Cross-species grazing is a great way to help control. It's not the only way. All these are like small things that you can do in concert to help out. The donkey will eat the sheep eggs. They don't grow in it. They're non-host. They die. The sheep will eat the equine eggs. They die. And so I've really seen some benefit in some places that do that. Yes, right. Thank you, because I've always wanted to go. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know you and I have discussed this before, but I had done some research out of Australia yeah. regarding bee complex, yes. especially in lambs, because they were saying that, and they've been doing this study now for about nine years, and they've had really good success with it, that they found that when the lambs start to wean from their mothers, which usually starts at about a month, the mothers, you'll notice, they'll push them away, you know, they don't stand as long for the lambs, yeah. and the lambs start to get stressed. So at that point, their immune systems are weakened because they're just... Well, suboptimal nutrition, stressed. yeah. So as they start to get weaned, they were saying that they started getting B-complex to boost the immune system, which then would help the They probably boost their nutrition and their digestion and indirectly. To help them, even though they may end up getting the parasites, the barber pole, that it would help <coughs> to be able to fight them off better. Yeah. Yep. So we started doing that to some of our lambs, and it has helped. Yep. I noticed that when we've taken them in for a blood transfusion, which for a couple of them, that's something that they told us to continue yep. giving. About a year or so ago, you came out to see one of my goats mm -hmm. that was sick. We weren't sure what she had. And John knows that we give our animals every opportunity. I mean, we'll go 30 days at least you know, before we just make a decision to put them down, uh, depending on their condition. And we didn't know if she had Benjil or she had oh, what yeah, she yeah. had. But um, you came out at about three and a half weeks and she had been down. But I gave her safeguard every single day for almost 45 days. And on the 45th day, she got up and she's still alive today. Well, that's good. Yeah. I mean, we moved her. We moved her from one end of the, pad, the, the shed every day. I mean. It was relentless, like you said. It can take a lot of effort for a sick yeah. animal, and certainly the parasite challenge should have been removed from her with that much yeah. safeguard. Yeah. But the bee complex, yeah, that's very important. I mean, you use it in any off-feed ruminant um, because they're not digest. It, and the thing with ruminants is, nutrition-wise, you feed the rumen, and the rumen feeds the animal. And if you keep the rumen bugs happy, 
they'll do great. They'll work through so many things, problems they get into, and that if they're making the VFAs and the things they need to do, it's going to bolster the immune system. So that lamb you talk about that is a little bit, you know, backed off, weaning, I mean, weaning is a stressful time. Uh, we talk about it in cattle. Um, you, what you don't want to do is vaccinate, wean, castrate, tattoo on the same day. It's too much stress. Yeah. yeah. B complex. B twelve. B twelve. I I use I use a lot of B twelve, mostly in dairy cattle. Yeah. But you can use a good. Um, Does B complex have has a thiamine? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. It's a fair amount. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. B twelve. You and, and thiamine you need no, prescription no, no, no. for. Yeah. Okay. So and that won't change with the upcoming regulations yeah. at all. That's antibiotics only. Yep, and it's it's yeah, quite yeah. quite safe to give. Yeah. yeah. It's got a long shelf life. Yep. So um, just don't leave it on the dash of the pickboard yeah, pickup truck. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so um, the the Fomacha test um, picking out who to deworm, pick out the ones that need it. Um, they talk about the nutrition, which is very important because the expression on the on the one there is you can feed your way out of a worm problem, but you can't deworm your way out of a feed problem. And it's very true. I mean, some of the, the worst, from no one in this room, uh, situations I've seen uh, with parasites have been just where they're just, they're just not getting fed right. Um, and feeding them right, they have the ammunition then for their immune system to fight things off. And that's really what we want. Um, this will tie in a little bit to the FDA talk about antibiotics. I mean, judicious use of antibiotics. We basically, judicious, we want to not use them if we don't have to. Um, but in this case here, feeding is really good medicine. And I know people here, you know, you, when they have lambs, you're feeding them for lactation and getting that metabolizable protein to them so their immune systems function like they should. And that time at weaning, Rennie, like you mentioned, that's a, a stressful time, even like a little bit of supplement for the lambs, which you're probably doing, that helps them get through that time. Yep. So, um, so the biosecurity we talked about. Um, oh, use oral dewormers. Um, there's injectables that are out there. I've used the injectables as an oral formulation because I think, like the Ivmex sheep drench, if you've got a 300-pound sheep, it's a boatload to drench them with. You can use the injectable as an oral. The reason you don't want to inject it like you do in cattle is because when you inject it, yeah, levels get up pretty high, but they slowly go down. And that low level of exposure is what helps develop resistance. So get them in orally, they get in the gut, they do their job properly. If you're using combinations, don't mix them all in the same syringe. You know, we don't have the nice drenches like in Australia where you can just pull up and drench. I know it's extra work doing three, but have them all in separate syringes. They don't always play well together. Um, but accurate weights, know the weights of your animals. You have a scale, that's great. If you have weight tapes, that's good too. Have some way to assess what they are. If you really, if you have a group of them, you know, if you're using something like Safeguard, whoever the heaviest one is, use that as your weight. You could be okay. Safeguard literally is quite safe. I mean, you could give them their weight and Safeguard, it'd be no problem at all. If you give them their weight and prohibit, you're gonna kill them. So you want to be on the level with that and just be careful like any medicine. But don't treat them all and move and don't use long-acting products. Long-acting can be good a little bit for, who has alpacas here? I knew you do. So they're probably on monthly Dectomax. Okay, so that's the thing with, in, in that side of the world where you're kind of giving up the 
uh, efficacy of an avermectin to preserve them from meningeal worm, uh, which you do, but you can use the other products around to help treat the GI parasites. Yeah, yep, yeah. yep, yeah. and they will. Yeah, yes, Rachel. It really helps. Yeah. Donkeys are good for killing sheep worms and camelid worms. It does make a difference. Yeah. Even even cattle and sheep together are good. Um, some of the besides um, animal, other alternate species grazing or uh, other species grazing, some of the other things are the copper oxide wire particles we talked about. There's also a, a product called Bioworma. I don't know if anybody's used that or heard of that. Bi a bioworma. It's available from Premier One. It was developed in Australia. And what it is, is it's a fungal spore. And you feed it to them. There's like a little scoop, and it's like you got a 60 pound lamb, you give this much. It's expensive. It's really quite effective. It will not kill worms in the animal. It does not grow above 37 degrees Celsius. Um, and it does not grow in the anaerobic environment in, inside of the animal. But when it gets out on pasture, those spores hatch about the same time as the worm, the homunculus, hatches out. And it puts a net around. It basically locks that larva in and kills it. And it's really effective. The studies in Queensland where they had almost, they had sheep control group that were up to like 20,000 eggs per gram. There was like, there were not like, there were none in the test group. It's really effective. And where that can be, you know, big uh, flock, probably it's too expensive to use. But think about that for your incoming animals that are maybe keeping your new, newly animals have been quarantined. Put them on Bioworma for a month or so. And they'll go out. If they do have resistant parasites, it's going to kill them off until they get the new balance in their gut. It's a really exciting product and really good. Um, so, can you talk about, um, so I was actually just talking to someone about it over the weekend. Yeah. Do you have any suggestions on how to give it? Just, well, yeah, no, it's tough with like, an you have to have animals individually give it. And it's like any oral fed product. Um, and people ask me, you know, about the oral or the uh, fed, the grain type uh, dewormers. I, if you have one animal, that's, they're terrific because you know they ate it. But if you have a group situation, and I'm not talking about biowormers so much, but the dewormers, like the safeguard pellets, the equibits, um, who goes up to the trough? The strong ones. Ones probably don't have worms and they eat it. The ones that need it don't get it. So in this case here, it's going to be a little bit laborious sometimes to give it. Powder. It's powder. Yep. So you have to kind of top dress it. That's what we did. You we, can. Made, we didn't top dress it like in the We just started it too this week. Okay. Yeah. Is there any way that you can mix it with something and drench it to make sure everybody gets it? I said mix like it with apple sauce. Yeah. It's almost it, like granular. Like yeah. Uh, It'd be a heck of a drench. Yeah. That's yeah. Cool. <laughs> And that's another, really another one to mention. Bioworm is very good. The other thing is some of these alternative forages, um, Seracea, Lespedeza, and, yep, and um, 
You may have it right, I may have it wrong. Um, and what they are is they have high tannins in them. And high tannins can retard the growth of parasites. They're really useful for that. You can get these things as grain pellets. You can even buy, or plant forage, um, bird's foot trefoil called the poor man's alfalfa. That's got high, uh, high levels of tannins in it. Uh, one of the highest levels is multiflora rose. You'd love to have them go out and eat all that stuff. It's just a mess. But if you can feed some of the pellets or you can plant some of the forages that high, have high tannins, it's really useful. Um, and it's, so these things each by themselves, there's also a vaccine that's used in other countries, it's been trialed in California for barber pole. You gotta give them about four vaccinations a season though. It's reasonably effective. I think as they improve the adjuvants with it and make it better, it may become more uh, liable to be helpful on an everyday basis. And so all these things, each one of them isn't a savior, but together you build up that integrated pasture and pest management so that you keep things under control. Because as I said, the dewormers, even if we get a new class of dewormer, which doesn't look likely anytime soon, um, how long until we get resistance to that? And, so, and that's what they're seeing in Australia and New Zealand a little bit. So we have to look at these uh, products as, as I said in the beginning, finite, but use them properly and judiciously like antibiotics and they'll, they'll work a lot longer and you'll keep your, your, your flock or your, your herd healthier. So, but in summary, we aren't gonna go back to that 70s and 80s where, oh yes, Rachel. Oh, sorry, I just have a question that's slightly off topic. Um, is there any like online database system yet, kind of like a dairy comp? that's more reasonable for small ruminant owners just to log individual treatments or check with Check with Worm Boss, the Australian's website. Okay. Worm Boss or Paraboss. Okay. Uh, that's pretty good. And there was one. Well, yes, and there's there's FAMICHA charts that you can you can have a monthly or a season one, and you can look okay. at like okay, this is why we're doing because records, yeah, the records are just like with dairy comp. Okay. It's important to have those records because then you can manage it. You're exactly right, Rachel. And check with uh, yeah, Wormwise is another one. Wormwise.org. That's New Zealand uh, worm uh, research, and you know, wet and warm down there, they've got a lot of experience with. Yep, so I can post it. Just to like put in a code and you yep. know everything about, you know, yep. for oh, small yes. early bird too, who is one of my colleagues that practice out in Monmouth County. She's in Connecticut now. She's developed with three other uh, veterinarians and scientists a, a herbal product. A lot of those have not been effective. This seems to show some pretty good results. Um, and I'll post that on there. Um, she was just in New Jersey last week. And um, it's showing some pretty good results against barber pole worm. And again, that would be something that would be part of the toolbox. To, uh, early bird, early bird solutions. I don't know, I'm off the top of my head. Yeah, it's a whole <coughs> recipe. Yeah. Yeah. But it seems real. Yeah, it'd be good to 
Yeah. Less for Giza and less for Daisy. I said the same thing. And I, I was going around ASI and nobody knew what the heck I was talking about. <laughs> um, but I was asking that question because in New Jersey, there was just a, it was, it was listed as an invasive species. Mm -hmm. And there was some concern for people who connected. We've got some people that use it. Um, and uh, so that is one thing. You may not have the ability to get the yeah. seed anymore if you want to try to put it in your pasture, so at least legally. Yeah. Um, you may have to go with just the, the, the pellets yeah. and feed them. Yep. I guess alternatively, you can just soak your grain in red wine, right? <laughs> yep, that's another, that, that's another one. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, so the one thing I didn't mention just quickly, though, is, is genetics is all a portion of this, too. And selection of animals is, a lot of you here know uh, PJ Murphy. And uh, he has, I've, I've sent uh, bucks of his down to West Virginia to the grazing test down there where they are looking for parasite resistance in these animals and they subject them without being dewormed and seeing how they do. And genetic progress, you know, it's small steps, but they add up a lot over time. And the same thing is true with, if you think about the genetics of resistance, um, if you look at your flock or herd, the same ones that have the, the number one FAMACHIT scores they're probably going to be the same ones every time. And so selecting from them for that is important. It's like when you select a doe or a, a ewe that has twins or triplets. You don't always pick the ones that have singles. The same thing is true with a FAMACHA score. And selecting for those, you're going to slowly build up the ability for them to, to, to deal with this with resistance. Resistance is when they really, the, their immune response doesn't allow the worms to infect them. And they will have... Um, a um, lower egg count. Resilience is another aspect. Resilience means they can have that infection, but they deal with it. You'll have one with a high egg count, but you look at her, she's got like really red, red eyes and good body condition score. She's just dealing with that. She's not letting it affect her. So there are two genetic traits and selection for those is an important way to kind of get your flock or herd into position to uh, deal with these parasite challenges. And um, yeah, and so all these different approaches, whether it's the tannins or the, the vaccine or the, the bioworma uh, and genetics, they're all things that are going to really help us deal with this dwindling era of effective. Because, you know, when we were in school, they all worked. You gave it to them, they killed them, you didn't think twice about it. I mean, I just remember just de deworming the whole flock and out on the new pasture, you didn't think twice about it. But it, it doesn't work that way, and we're not going back to it. So, so that's sort of the presentation on... Um, uh, the parasites for tonight, other than questions. Yes, Bridget. If you don't have a problem, should you be feeding like the bioworm? If you don't have a problem, and I think in your situation where you're, I've had people that have not dewormed in a long time. Yeah, there's no requirement that you should, you have to. So then don't start. If there, if your egg counts are low, mm -hmm. I mean, if if you started <laughs> getting some young stock in there, or bringing in others, quarantine them when they come in, um, yes, that's fine. Yeah. That's fine. So, um, <clears throat> so on the back side of the brochure, we have a little bit of a change coming next month with the FDA and what's called GFI 263. That is guidance for industry where they are going to be relabeling over-the-counter antibiotics to become prescription. Now, for people here that are working with a veterinarian on an ongoing basis, it's probably not going to be a big hiccup. You're not going to be able to drive down to track supply, maybe your vet's closer, um, and get those things. Now, it starts June 11th. Does that mean that 
there's nothing available after June 11th? No, because what they're changing is the marketing status of the drug. And by that, I mean that it's going to be the same drug. It's going to be relabeled. If Tractor Supply or Surgeonsville uh, feed has some penicillin on the shelf that still has the over-the-counter label on it, they have it in stock now. If they have it on June 10th, for example, you can buy it without a prescription. It's fine. It's not, a, it's not like five years ago. Um, probably no one here has been using VFDs, veterinary feed directives, more common in the cattle world, where if you put on chlortetracycline, some of the uh, antibiotics that are used for conditions like anaplasmosis, but more importantly, like pneumonia, that changed. That was January 1st, 2017. And that day, even if you had it on your farm, you technically needed a VFD for it. This is different. This is going to be phased in a little bit more slowly. So if it's still there on the shelf, it's fine to buy it. And um, so I know people have had a lot of questions. They'll say, gee, do I have to have a veterinarian come out to my farm every time I have a sick animal now to give antibiotics? No you have what's called a VCPR, a veterinary client patient relationship. And that's when I, I established one with uh, a farm in Burlington County uh, earlier uh, last week. I stopped down, we visited the premise, seeing what's there, discussed some of the protocols. I know the farm then. And what a VCPR requires is that you have familiarity with the operation, the owner has access to a veterinarian. If they can't get me, if they can get someone else, that requirement is there. But then if he contacts me and says, well, Doc, I've got uh, you know, some calves with pneumonia. I've got, what should I give him? I've got some reservoir. Yes, use that. So you get that direction to go with that. So I don't have to go out and see that farm. I may need to. There may be cases where that's important. But you know, same with you, Kashin. You know, if you have one, it's like, yeah, let's give, give him the banamine now. And with the prescription products, that's how that works. So I don't have to go out there. You don't have to go and see everyone that's there, which is probably good for both of us. Uh, but it means that there's a little bit more veterinary oversight. I mean, I'm also taking responsibility for the use of these drugs on the farm. And sometimes that comes into play, you know, example for penicillin. I get sometimes some cases, two things go on. People read the label on penicillin, which is an old label. It's not medically effective. I think even when we were in school, they told us three mils per 100 pounds. It's labeled at one mil per 100 pounds. It's because it's an old label from the 50s and 60s when it was fighting strep septicemia. Now it needs to be higher. But when you go higher, you get longer residues. And we're food animal veterinarians, so we're trying to also protect the food supply as well as the animal health. And that animal on there is probably going to have a residue. If you send a lamb to market that's got a higher dose of penicillin in it or longer, and then you get a residue flag on that, then you get the FDA checking your whole operation out. And nobody wants that uh, because they'll really watch all your animals in the future for quite a while. So it's just responsible use of antibiotics. And people say, what about dewormers? What about vaccines? What about uh, uh, B-complex? No, it's, it's for medically important antibiotics. This started about 15 years ago. It was GFI 152 back then. And they assessed what were medically important antibiotics. Does it affect a technically an antibiotic like rumensin or Bovitec that you see on the labels of calf or lamb feed or, or goat feed? No, it doesn't. Those are not deemed part of that. It's going to be, for example, penicillin. Um, any of the uh, injectable antibiotics, any of the calf boluses, any of the mastitis tubes, uh, you know, today and tomorrow that you see there, they're going to be fall under prescription status. And so you'll need to um, have a relationship with a veterinarian. So I think as it says there, the best time to talk to your vet is before the livestock are sick. Um, sometimes you get a call at 11.15 on a Saturday night 
and uh, something's an emergency, and that happens. Obviously, these animals, yeah, they don't have clocks or calendars. Um, always take your animal's temperature before you talk to John. Yep, yep. <laughs> and I ask about the selenium status. Yep. So, um, so as a, a, a colleague um, once said, he said, develop a daytime relationship with your veterinarian. <laughs> and um, that's... I can't say that you should use it at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some people have stuff that's back from you know it starts with a one on the year date, and um, right, right in the bin. Um, so yeah, I yeah, and there's been some talk about that, but I can't recommend that you use expired products at all. But that's primarily due to efficacy, not safety, correct? Yes, there's some things that may degrade. I mean, look at a bottle of LA 200. You know, that gets almost black. And so you, you, you want to stick with it. And I, I understand, you know, um, you don't want to have a, a bottle of Draxin that, that, yeah, that goes bad, right? Yeah. Um, that's a very expensive antibiotic. A 500 mil bottle is about $2,000. And um, so I have a lot of people deal, I deal with use the online pharmacy and order the medicine. And I had a fellow up in uh, Washington today. He ordered, he's going to be at his place tomorrow morning. Um, for very little, you know, delivery charge, and I get the email. It says, "Okay, check. Yeah, I know this farm. It's good, good to go." Um, so, and a common question I'll ask, and I get a call a day probably from someone, you know, "Who's your veterinarian?" No, no, never had one. And there's a lot of farms like that, and I know a lot of people are very self-sufficient. But it's really good, as we talked about earlier, to work as a team, and even if it's just, you know, it's a once-a-year visit, basically, you know, so. It's, it doesn't have to be all the time. And you already have livestock that are quite valuable. And so that working as a team and just having that backup of knowledge on both sides to help out, to help the animals be productive and healthy is really important. So I, th I think overall it's good because I've seen cases where um, they'll call, someone will call and well, I gave it a week of penicillin, then we gave it a week of LA 200 and boy, it's not better. And it's like, well, it's not an infection. You know, it's, it's so, you know, so <clears throat> that's why it didn't get better. And so you want to help out with that and give them the best chance that they have. Um, so I don't think it's going to be onerous. And I think a lot of people are upset because, and I remember as a kid, you go down to the Agway and get combiotic and it worked great and you didn't have to worry about it, but it's different now. And what we're also trying to prevent or not have to go to, I mean, I've got colleagues that I know in Europe and they have to get a, you have to culture something and get the culture results before you can prescribe like a cephalosporin yeah. on that. So we're, we're trying to take the steps we need to keep that extreme change not here, not here. So, and you know, do I think sometimes dewormers should be included? Maybe, not really. But if you use them judiciously, because they do get used a little bit too, going back to this talk, they do get a little bit overused. Um, and use them when you need them and when they work and assess the efficacy of your dewormers. And it's just some manure samples and counting them and looking for that percent kill. And then you'll, you'll have healthier animals. And I know in the equine world and in the cattle world, there is resistance starting to show up then. I know some of the, the horses will check looking for high and low shedders and it's not, you probably have so many people in Mary Beth that are just like every first of the month, give the dewormer. And um, it's just not the way, not so the way. Yeah. They say if you're 200 or less, yeah. negative, 200 or 400 miles, and then 
hundreds that we shutter. But like I've gone through all those liter literature searches through the uh, you know the um, small woman of practitioners, yeah. and nobody has designated that. Everything's like a situation. Yeah. So why isn't there like a set guideline as to... I think it's because of the properties of the barber pole worm versus the small strongyles in horses. But now I know Cornell is doing that. Um, you know, you can add on, because I send all my peoples to Cornell. Yeah. They'll do, um, you know, a homunculus detected. Yes. They'll do that new antigen test. I think it's an antigen test. Yep, the, the, the lectin test. It's right. a it's a peanut lectin, and it will you can identify the worm that way. And there's also a test too that will assess for it's more expensive for larger flocks or big problems that you can test for ivermec uh, resistance. Uh, Wormx.org, uh, I think University of Oregon and also Georgia does that. Dr. Ray Kaplan is the one you want to look up. You'll find. He and Dr. Williamson uh, listed on there are the ones that have really done this. And she has a good presentation. It might be out called Fecal Fluency, where you really learn how to um, deal with um, some of the problems with measuring these with the fecal egg count and, and doing that. And so just learning how to do that on a routine basis, it becomes regular. It becomes regular, and it's not so hard a problem. Yes? I think you already covered this, but what is an okay level per ground? Oh, you know, you look at the whole animal, but I would say I don't get too really worked up over 800 or below. Okay. Yeah, it, and that might be different if it's a lamb. So, but taking the whole animal into account, 5,000, that's a different story. Okay. So. Because, uh, so, I didn't realize, I was just reading over this, I didn't realize that nasal discharge was... Um, that's for bots, that's not so much a problem here so much. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. in sheep. Can be, but it's not a big problem that I run into. That or lungworms either. So, oh. yeah. So the biggest problem is the barber pole that we deal with. However, John, so yeah. it's like some of the peoples come back from Cornell saying they're not worried about strongyloides right. causing like neo sudden neonatal death in lambs and calves. Yeah. Like, what is your take on that? Like, how many cases have you seen from strongyloides in our? I don't see too much death loss from it. I see some real bad performance loss in that, the strongyloides, but also cuperia, and also nematodirus. I think nematodirus is the one that I tend to find, and those, those eggs really stand out on a McMaster. I mean, they're just so big, and the, the, the adult lays eggs so infrequently, that's why finding one is, is, pathologic, is a case of pathologic. Yes, Deb? Uh, question three. You're um, saying that if I have the, the vet-patient relationship, will that trump the um, the um, telemedicine. Yes, that can, that can be done. Or that, does that, that bill still need to progress? Yeah, you still need an, I still need an on-farm visit. Yeah, but once you do that, you can proceed with telemedicine in a lot of cases. All right, because there's, there's bills and stuff that are in the legislature right yes. now. Yes. That's one of them they that may, I don't know whether we need to press or not. So. It, it may change. A lot of that came around in the pandemic, you know? Uh, and evolved a lot, so um, a little bit less so in farm animal medicine than in on small animal. Um, but it's it's something that probably will work hand in hand. But you still need at least the, the once a year visit from to farm to have a valid VCPR. And I think the one link on there is from the ABP, the Bovine Practitioners Association, 
about the specifics of the uh, veterinary client patient relationship. It's a little bit more livestock oriented than the one that's on the AVMA site. So that's, that can be used too. And that's, I'll post that up and I'll, I'll email to everybody or, or put on the Facebook page uh, where it's at. So those links you can just click on them instead of trying to copy that long URL. Yes. Yep. So they've got a lot. I mean, they've been set through a number of presentations, and they've got worksheets on there for people. Yep. To, uh, there's, there's a lot out there on it. And so, so that's. I'll also put in a testimonial for the online pharmacy. So I've been I've been using it for John for years now, and and. One of the first things you always worry about is, oh my God, is this going to cost me more money than going to Tractor Supply or Premier or anybody else? It's very comparable in pricing. I get my, my all my supplies pretty much directly from that, including needles, syringes. Yep, that's one thing in Jersey. Yep. So. Instead of having to go across the bridge in Pennsylvania and buy. <laughs> I see we had a late comer here, Dr. Oliver Elbert, one of my colleagues. Has a, a farm down the road and uh, been working on farm animals for a lot longer. I think I rode as a pre-vet when you were starting there, Oliver. So it's good to see you. So, so that's that's the base basic discussion tonight. Um, we'll get ready for those changes next month. I think anyone here that's you know that I work with or Dr. Morsky or Dr. Elbert is working with shouldn't see too much of a change. So, but if you have friends that haven't used a vet, uh, encourage them to to meet them. Yes, Monica. Can I ask one more question? Um, we show the kids show off. Mm -hmm. Our kids. We started last year. We go from fair to fair to fair to fair. Yep. We do like almost. There was nine of them last year. Eight of them this year. One of the things that everyone always is like, "How often are you giving LA?" I'm like, "We don't give yeah. LA every time we go somewhere." I'm like, "Oh my God, you should dose them before they get on the trailer." Yeah. And I'm just like. That's why. Am I not? Like, am I, am I missing something? Because we don't <coughs> dose them every time they go somewhere. If I did, I feel like they'd be dropped, they'd be filled with LA every time. And the LA, the LA 200, as everyone knows, um, that's one that's going. I, I, there's cases where you have high stress times when what's called a metaphylactic dose would be useful. There's actually an antibiotic uh, for cattle, uh, Batril, that's labeled for that. But that's like loads of cattle on a trailer going 800 miles. Um, a lot more stress than just going to the Middlesex or Somerset or Middletown Grange Fair. Um, but watch your animals, you know, and see if they come in with a high temp. That's why we check them at the fair when we get there. And those animals, it's, it's judicious use, just like with the dewormers. If you have one that's had a hard ride, something like that, you can see they're off high temp, they're breathing a little hard, then treat them. I don't think you need to do prophylactic on, certainly not for every trip they go on. Yeah. So. No. My next question is, and I, I'm, I'm new to this for the most part. Are we doing? Is it? Are, am I doing something wrong by taking them to this many shows? No. Because no, no, so no. many people were like, "That's horrible." Those poor sheep, and I'm just like, they seem fine. If anything, I get yelled at for them being too fat and happy. That's the one thing that most of the judges say to us. No. Those are over conditioned, and they seem very happy. Should they not? No, no. The way, the way. And I got to be going to the fair for like twelve years now. And they know when they're going to the fair, and they love it. Like they want to go. But it's like, and it's, and it is. I, I will tell yeah. you, we start in July, and it's literally back to back. They're on and off the trailer. They get usually two days home, and they're going to the next show. Yep. Which I get that, but 
I didn't lose a single sheet last year, but everyone's like, oh my god, you're horrible. And I'm like, if I open the back of the car and the ghosts jump in, that's like shipping fever. Like, if they've never been on the trailer before and they're so stressed out and they're going to get sick, but like, if they're going on the trailer every weekend, they're not going to get shipping fever because they're stressed because they're going every And shipping fever is just an indication of stress. Yeah. Okay, so I'm not. No. Like, even Don yelled at me. He was like, that's too many. Stop. Cut out half the shows. And I'm like, our kids are literally kids for so long, and they only, there's not a lot of sheep shows. Like, horse shows are every weekend year long. Well, our kids will yeah. only show at so many shows, and I'm like, get them in as many as I can. Yeah. Do the couple in the summer, and that's fine. Yeah. And that's one, one thing with, with show season coming up, not too long, is thinking about your rabies vaccines. <laughs> Uh, for a sheep. Yep. So we'll wind up with you. And um, it's it's we've had uh, I think Hunterton's leading the charge now with rabies cases. Uh, and not to fear monger, but it's out there. Um, I think there's 16 this year so far of wildlife and farm animal. And I've I've had one uh, bovine case and one uh, sheep case in April. Um, so it's it's around. So. Um, what was, what was what? Oh, that sheep looked like meningitis. It looked. It was 106.4 temp. Um, just acted a little bit neurologic, and, and I had a vet student with me, and I said, "There's one rule about rabies: is that there's no rules about how it presents, and it can always, always any neurologic animal, rabies is on the list until you know otherwise, because of the consequences are so high. Uh, you know, you're dead. So, um, so that one was the the. Uh, the bovine one was a steer, about a thousand pounds, uh, a little over a year or so, and he almost looked like a listeria case. Didn't have a dropped ear, but he was circling a little bit in the pen, and uh, had all the hair rubbed off the head. When I first saw him, the next day the head, the hair was rubbed off the bottom because of the itching they get, and um, and so we took the head on that one, and, and Trenton, you know, they got a rabies positive on that. So I got to two rabies exposures for the price of one booster. So. <laughs> <laughs> These were both raccoons. Well, the raccoons were seen on the farm. Okay. Presumably with that. You get raccoon oh, skunk. This cow? Yeah, this was the cow. Okay. Yep, and then the sheep in the other case. And they saw uh, raccoons on the property, both of them. But bats, skunks, fox, raccoon. And raccoon prominent. Sorry? Yeah, they bite. That's the only way I can do because someone saw a picture I took of the, um, the head that I had taken off the, the, uh, the steer, and there was a lot of blood around. Like, can you get rabies from that? And I talked to a, a colleague who's had done rabies research, and they said, no, not, not from the blood, but from the saliva. And so that's why biting, and you think, if, you got, if you're a cow or a goat or a sheep, and you see a raccoon going across your pasture, what do they do? They go up and check it out, and boom, they get bit. So that, that cow, while that was done, you had to put them down. Oh, yeah. It's 100%. Well, that's, this, this one was getting in bad shape, so we elected to euthanize. But if you fought it ahead of time, would you be able to fix it? Hmm? No. If you fought it ahead of time, would you No, you're dead. No, 100%. I mean, there's a few people in the world that have survived, but I mean, literally like three, four, five um, in all of history. So um, it's, 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 that's why we get vaccinated the first day of vet school, and um, they want to you know, manage that so our exposure is high. Uh, so, yes, Bridget? I tried to go and get rabies vaccine, and they won't do it. No. You, you have to, CDC has classifications of who should get it, and you need to have sort of a certain exposure level uh, to, to get that, unless you've been exposed, in which case you, you do get the 
post-exposure uh, prophylaxis, which is like, if you're all familiar with tetanus antitoxin, you get that, and then you get the vaccine afterwards to develop your own immunity. So, good. Any questions? Any more questions? When yes, you're sir. writing a script for antibiotics, are you writing for the treatment course, or are you just giving them the whole bottle? <clears throat> Not always the whole bottle. Okay. Sometimes, sometimes it's a dispensed amount. I had someone come in, picked up two, dra two doses of Drax and KP for lamb hoof okay. rot today. So the thing also with sheep and goat is there's not everything is, la is labeled for it. So much of it is extra label, what they call ELDO use. So we are, are prescribing it. So technically, I mean, anytime you're using like you know penicillin with, if, or a drug that's not labeled for it, it's prescription anyway. Yeah, so uh, you can try to have that conversation to see if it's even needed. Because I was thinking like, if you give a farm a whole bottle and they see like, per se, like something that's like a skin infection, well, maybe they think it's bacterial, but it's actually lice, you know? And yeah, in well, that's, yeah. So By diagnosing is exactly is, is so important. Find out, you know, who's doing what. So. Yeah. Right. yeah, so, so, well, good. Thankful everybody came out. Yes, and I think there's, cool. thank you very much. There's cookies and coffee and dessert back there, so please uh, have a quick bite before you head back to your farms.